Hebrews 11, we'll begin reading in verse 13. The sermon today is taken from Hebrews 11, 13 through 16. I'm going to read a little bit of captions of previous verses so you get the context. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. And through faith, Sarah. Verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, being persuaded of them, embracing them, and confessing that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful, or if they had remembered that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they the desire a better country, that is, a heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Let's pray. Our Father, what an astounding statement. You are not ashamed to be called the God of people. As sinful and lowly as we are. Not because of our goodness. Not because of our morality. Our ethics. Not because every choice we make is right. But because we trust you. And because of that trust, we respond to your promises. We obey your commands. And you look at that obedience. And, and as Jesus marveled at the faith of the Syrophoenician woman, you look at our faith and you say, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. Lord, we stand before you broken sometimes, humbled because we fail. And we ask, Lord, often for you to help us turn from our sins. And yet we can just rejoice because the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from sin. We are confessors. We confess that Jesus is our Lord and Master. We confess that you have forgiven our sins by his blood on the cross. And we confess that this world is not our home. So help us, Lord, today to be pilgrims, to embrace the pilgrimage. That we would be like these who lived their lives in a, in a time and in a place that I can't even imagine without the Bible. <clears throat> without the Lord Jesus, without the indwelling Holy Spirit. But they had, Lord, your revelation. You told them to do this, and they did. What a testimony. Help us to see these witnesses, to see the world as they saw it, and to desire a better one, and to live that way. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. In 1583, Edward Herbert, the brother of English poet George Herbert, was born in Shropshire, England, 
He studied at Oxford and in 1603 was knighted by King James I, the man whose name is on the spine of my Bible. During his lifetime, Herbert was ambassador to France and given titles in both England and Ireland. They call that a peerage. And he loved music. He wrote songs for the lute, and he loved philosophy. He wrote a book published in 1624 titled De Veritate. Um, I actually uh, was playing around with the pronunciation of the Latin there. Some say veritate. I don't think anybody's going to complain. It just means on truth. And it was a book that won him the title, The Father of English Deism. Herbert begins the book with this question. How can we know the truth? Doesn't that sound like a modern question? I mean, this is in the early 1600s, and someone's asking, how can you know what's true? Herbert argues that a man knows the truth, that's called epistemology, how you know what you know, through four faculties. And these four faculties include instinct, the conscience, our five senses, and reason. And based on those four faculties, Herbert argued for five, what he called, common notions. And these common notions were, and I want you to listen to this because it's going to sound very Christian. Listen to what Herbert's five notions were. There is a supreme God. He should be worshipped. Virtue and piety are important. Evil is only cleansed by true repentance. And there is an afterlife where we are either rewarded or punished. Now, doesn't that sound pretty Christian? That sounds like something you'd hear at church, and, and a good church at that. But nowhere in his common notions does Herbert ever talk about revelation. In fact, later Herbert writes about revelation as being suspect, something that you cannot necessarily trust. And he argues that revelation is, is only where it's consistent with the four faculties only where your instincts and conscience and your senses and reason agree, well, only then is revelation regarded as valid. Now, were any of you there when Jesus died on the cross? Were any of you there when Jesus rose from the dead? Herbert's unwillingness to accept anything as true that he could not verify with his instincts and conscience and senses and intellect Anything that he could not verify with his mind. Those things, he said, well, they are not true. And the result of Herbert's influence was the rise of deism. That's why he got the title, the father of English deism. And the belief in God. They believed in God. They believed God created the world. But not necessarily the God of the Bible. And ultimately, the deists rejected the supernatural. Many, if not most, of our founding fathers were deists. Which, if you remember those common notions I mentioned, is why they sound so Christian to our ears. You read their writings and you go, man, that guy was a Christian. That's how Christians write. No, 
Not necessarily. They weren't. Herbert wasn't. And because Herbert places his faith in himself, because he places his faith in his own intellect, he basically rejects divine revelation. Remember Thomas Jefferson, our third president, was a deist. And that's why when he wrote his, he, he translated his New Testament, he actually had Jefferson's New Testament. He actually took a penknife and cut out all of the supernatural events, all of Jesus's miracles. He said, no, those didn't happen. They didn't match his mind. And because of deism, which rejects divine revelation, Herbert would likely have agreed with us that there is a creator God for different reasons than we, but then he would have mostly rejected the second part of our worldview, the idea that God has revealed himself. This is where Herbert would have said, no, I can't trust in that. I don't trust necessarily in this God. I trust in man, and that is where deism is. And if you remember, there are two fundamental worldviews that make up modern society, which are relativism and deism. Relativism is that idea that what you believe is fine for you, what I believe is fine for me. Deism says, no, there is a God, but he's really detached from the world. And both of these worldviews are being challenged by a new worldview that I call moral paganism. But these worldviews are not dead. Relativism and deism are attempts to answer Herbert's question. How can you know the truth? Relativism answers the question by claiming that truth is entirely subjective. They argue that if you want to say it's true, fine. But I may some say something different is true, and that's also fine. And from this, you can see why relativism always embraces skepticism. You have to be a skeptic, because truth is so subjective. It's not an easy question to answer. And then deism answers the question differently by claiming that you must search for the truth like going on a quest. Reason becomes the source of truth, the mind. Deism rejects biblical revelation, in particular the supernatural acts of God, because it rejects the idea that God intervenes into the world. Thus deism ultimately produces skepticism and also cannot answer Herbert's question. But I can. The biblical worldview answers the question, how can you know the truth? Because it sees life through an entirely different grid. It sees life through, there is a creator God, he has revealed himself, and I trust him. And that trust means believing in him. But if you believe in him, then you must Act. This is what I say is responding to him. My definition for faith, then, is a right response to what God has revealed. It is both believing, trusting, and acting. A response. So let's consider what it means to respond to God. And I think our text shows it means two things. That we acknowledge God's truth and pursue his will. Consider with me first, responding to God means acknowledging God's 
truth. God's truth is true regardless of our personal situation. Verse 13, look at the first part. These all, all of those patriarchs died in faith, not having received the promises. So what he says is the patriarchs died still trusting in God. That is, their faith was the dominating characteristic of their character at the times of their death. This includes Abraham and Isaac, but also Jacob, even fickle Jacob. Their faith in God is the measure by which they determined the course of their lives. People before the flood, Abel, who died a violent death, died trusting in God. Enoch, who didn't die at all, left this earth trusting in God. And then after the flood, Noah, who was before and after the flood, but he died after the flood, trusting in God, even though he lived through the most calamitous time in human history. Abraham and Sarah died trusting in God. Isaac and Jacob died trusting in God. They died, but the promises had not yet been fulfilled. The promises had been given to them, but they died before their fulfillment and I think if this is only a reference to post-flood patriarchs, so for a moment, take, take Enoch and Abel out of the equation, just Noah and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Sarah, that group, if that only refers to post-flood patriarchs, then the promise is probably the Abrahamic covenant, where God said to Abraham, this is what I'm going to do for you. If that's the promise here, then God's promise of a land and blessing are not fulfilled in the lifetimes of the patriarchs, and the seed promise is likely a reference to Messiah. I think definitively it's a reference to Messiah, according to Galatians. But that's also unfulfilled in their lifetime. Jesus did not come in the lives of these men. So you have here, if it's post-flood patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, if it's these people, then they died before the promise came. But it refers to all the patriarchs, then it's likely referring to both the Adamic, the Noahic, and the Abrahamic covenants. All these promises that were unconditional, that God made with man, that God says to man, I'm going to do these things for you. All of these covenants, all of them were not fulfilled completely. In fact, remember, the promise God gave to Adam and Eve, out of Eve would come a Messiah. Out of her seed would come one who would destroy the serpent, Satan, a reference to Messiah. So acknowledging that truth then is the second half of faith. Trusting it is part of it, but notice what these people did. They didn't receive the promises, but look again at verse 13. Having seen them afar off, they were persuaded of them. That is, they're not the actor. They're being acted upon. This is a passive participle here. They're being persuaded. Being persuaded of what's happening. They then, here's active, here's what they did. They embracing them, embracing the promises. This caused them to make a confession that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Do you see? They were fully convinced of what God said was true. Fully convinced of God's promises. It was like an object on the horizon, still far away. Still they couldn't reach it. But the promise of God 
of a land and of a seed and a blessing. All of that's beyond their reach, but it didn't make them less real. They're still there. And it was real enough that they were convinced the promises were true. Sarah became convinced that God's promise of a son was real because she determined that God was faithful. I think that's back in verse 11. Abraham was convinced enough that he willingly sacrificed his son. He was figuratively, Isaiah was, or Isaac was, dead even though he was alive. So being convinced, they were fully convinced, folks, in their minds, they were absolutely convinced that the promises were true. Being convinced of them, they confessed them. And what they confessed was the inferiority of their present state. Where I am right now is inferior to the promises that God has given to me. And isn't that true? This word confess means to make a public declaration. The, the Greek word itself refers to speaking something to be true. It, it's used in Romans 10 where we confess that Jesus is Lord. If you confess that he's Lord, you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you are saved. You're saved. That's the promise of God. It's a confession in 1 John 1. As we are confessors of sin, we confess we are sinners. That's the part of the process by which God saves us. He cleanses us from our sin. So this idea of confession is to publicly declare that this is true. What did these patriarchs declare to be true? That the promises of God given to them, but not yet fulfilled, were still absolutely true. And they're still true today. And in this case, the confession was how they embraced the truth about themselves. This is something they did themselves. They were the ones who declared their condition. You could read the sentence. They were embracing the promises and confessing their condition. I am a stranger and pilgrim. That's the condition. I'm not home here. This isn't where I live. This is just where I stay. I woke up this morning thinking about the old gospel song and I thought about singing it. And it would have been lovely. <laughs> this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. This is what they called themselves. I'm a foreigner here. Someone who has a home in another land. Folks, I, I know I've said this in the past, but you, it's good to be reminded. There's a reason why there is no American flag at the front of our pulpit area. Other churches put the American flag up there, put a Christian flag, that's fine. I, I'm not going to throw stones at them, but my friends, I'm not an American Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be an American. And I love my country. Walk into my office, you can see evidence of that. But I'm going to tell you, my citizenship, if pressed on the subject, is in heaven. I'm a heavenly citizen. It's not here. Ultimately, this makes me a stranger, a sojourner. I'm a pilgrim. I'm a wanderer. My place is temporary. I mean, someday someone else is going to live in my home 
Someday, someone else is going to sleep in my bedroom. I, I, I hope they get, well, it's a good mattress, but maybe they'll get a new one. That'd be kind of weird. But, you know, someday everything I have is going to be somebody else's. The car I drive, the clothes I wear. There's somebody, I know, my, if I go first, my wife's going to take all my clothes down to the thrift store and somebody else is going to buy them. Okay? And there's going to be some estate sale and people will be rummaging through my drawers and looking at my ties and my t-shirts and all of that. I'll give you 50 cents for this. I'll give you a quarter for that. I, I better, you know, it just reminds me, I better label how much these things are actually worth. I'm, I'm a sojourner. I'm a wanderer. See, see, these people were believing something that was now true of them. I, I know that there's a land promise that God is actually giving to Abraham. And, and in a sense, Abraham, by leaving Ur and going to Canaan, is, is saying, I agree with God that there is this land promise that's given to me. But in going there, he's actually saying, I'm looking for something even better than that. I want the home promised to me. They wanted another home. And my friends, responding to God's revealed word is to both say that it's true, but if it's true and you believe it, it means you have to do something about that. If you believe in God's truth, then you have to confess that God created this universe. That's true. It didn't just happen. I know there are really bright, well-educated people who say that th this all just happened. That isn't true. If you believe God's truth, then you must confess that you're a sinner. It's not mistakes. It's not oopsie, an accident. This isn't who I am as a person. No, it is who you are as a person. If you believe God's truth, then you have to confess that Jesus is Messiah, the Savior of those who trust in Him. If you believe God's truth, then you're not at home here. And that impacts everything about what you do, how you think about life now, the way you think about your money, the way you think about family, the way you think about your life's goals. Your pursuits are controlled by this. Think about it. Acknowledging God's truth if this is who you are, you say, yes, I do that, then it must result in pursuing his will. This is the second point. It means pursuing his will. Because pursuing God's will means rejecting personal ambitions. To be a wanderer here means everything here is temporary, put on hold. I'm not pursuing here. This is why I look at the modernists, and there are still some modernists around our former president is a true dyed-in-the-wool modernist. I mean, you can't find a person living more for today than Donald Trump. It doesn't make him any better or worse than our current president, who is not a modernist. In the best case I can figure out, as I've tried to study our current president, he must be a relativist. I don't know how else to describe him, because you can't pin him down on anything. But, but I'm going to tell you, there are modernists out there, there are 
postmodernists, there are relativists, there are deists out there, there are all these different worldviews, and I, I see all of those, and I'm saying, no, none of them are for me, because all of them keep, keep trying to ground you here, keep trying to say, this is where you should live, this is where your life is, everything is pursuing here. So you need a bigger house, and you need a faster car, and you, and you need the two and a half children, and the dog in the backyard, and the picket fence, you need all of that. In fact, I would say that some would even argue now that they're your right. That you have a right as a human being to have those things. And so you read, if you, if you follow co current secular culture, you read about people like the Kardashians. <laughs> I'm not making up the stuff you read about them. It just scratches the head. I just, what in the world? But you read about those people. This, this poor lady who wrecked her car twice the other day and was burned and hesh. You read, you read about people like this and you, you read about their lives and they're grounded here. And the pull, the pull is so strong. It's so strong to make you grounded here. If, if, I mean, if you want to fit in to secular culture, you want to fit into your job. I mean, what is everybody trying to do at work? Right? What are they trying to do? Get a little more, get a little bit ahead, just just doing my bit, trying to earn the American dream. That's my goal. That's here. That's stuff. And those and that pull is so strong. It's so strong. I can't imagine the disillusionment people must go through. I'm talking about unbelievers who have lived for here at the very end of their lives. I can't imagine the disillusionment they go through when they realize all of this is nothing. That this is the illusion. This is the shadow. Because when you, when you realize that, when you realize that this that we see around us is not the true, the true is with God, when you realize that, then your personal ambitions have to now be set aside. What, why would I live for now? If I live my whole life doing what I do now or even less than that, that's still okay if I'm pursuing his will. If, if I don't get the job promotion, if I don't get recognized for my skills, if I don't earn the requisite salary that I deserve, it's okay if I'm pursuing God's will. It's okay. Do, do you realize in my world, how a pastor is judged. How do you think a pastor is judged? How do you think? By what? How big is your church? You go to a pastor fellowship, and you know what people ask me? Here's the almost, almost always the number one question I get asked. I mean, I get asked this the most. It's not always the first question, but I get asked this the most. So how many, how many are you running now? That's a weird expression. Well, are we talking about Pamplona? You know? We're running with the bulls? I'm not doing that. How many are you running now? Do you know in a weird way? That's earth-centered. That's tied to here. Do you realize the book of Colossians? It's a pretty, pretty important book, wouldn't you say, in the New Testament? You say, as books go, pretty important. See, I had a teacher in college 
professors say that as a pastor, you should always be preaching through Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. You get done, just start over. Just those are the books. Those four books. You do got it. I don't. He was real excited about them. I guess, but you get it. You know, Colossians was written to a small church. And do you realize within about 25 years of it being written, there was a giant earthquake and it was gone? God had Paul write a, a book of the Bible to a church that was small and gone within 25 years of its writing. What a waste. You see, if they had been mindful of the country that they had left, Abraham could have returned to his previous home. Ur would have welcomed him back with open arms. If his mind, if, if it's even possible that he had fixated on the old country, the place he left, the place he left once and for all years before, the place that he said was no longer his home, if he, he said, if he, if he would have remembered that place, he could have gone back. He might have had opportunities to have returned. But you see, Abraham refused to remember that place. He would not call it to mind. That's what the word mindful is. I, the idea of remembering something. He, he, he Just something he didn't think about. His old life wasn't what he wanted. He wanted God. He wanted to pursue that. And all of his ambitions were, gained, were pushed that direction. I will gain him. I will win him. Everything else? Meaningless. Now that's a worldview that wows people. It's a worldview that causes people to think you're a little bit <laughs> off-center. Abraham had turned from his old way. Whatever his life plans were before God's call to him to leave her, they were now permanently gone. And in a secular sense, the entirety of Abraham's actions, they're not logical at all. Do, do you realize Herbert would look at Abraham and say, Abraham, you're wrong. This is wrong, dude. If Herbert used the word dude, that's what he would say. This is wrong. Abraham, you cannot verify this by your instincts and by your conscience and by your senses. And by your reason, this makes no sense. Why would you leave home where you're wealthy, where you have title and status? Why would you leave that to go to a place where there are strange people? Because God says someday he's going to give you that land. And by the way, you have no kids and you're old. And you think you're going to start having kids now because God promised you. All of that makes no sense, Abraham. Herbert's saying that's not true. And Abraham, as one of the witnesses, is crying out to you. It is true. It is true. And I'm going to put my whole life behind this. Abraham left an advanced civilization for a primitive one. Now, it was advanced for his time. We would look at it today and say it was primitive. But it was advanced. He left the security that he had in Ur for insecurity of wandering. He left stability for a life of pilgrimage because he rejected his personal ambitions, folks. And in doing that, he focused on his heavenly home. This is the, the letter B, this is the second point. It, you, see, you see, pursuing God's will means focusing on our heavenly home with God. Verse 16, now they desire a better country that is a heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. 
God isn't preparing for us an earthly home in this dirt. There's a better country that is a heavenly. It is an earthly home, but it's heavenly dirt. He's going to change everything about this earth someday, and he's going to replant us here in glorified bodies where we will never die. It is a heavenly home where we will always be with God. Chapter 12 and verse 22 calls this better country the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the place, Jesus says, he's going to prepare for us. And he says, and if I go, I will come back and bring you to myself. It's that place that will one day descend upon this new earth. It is that place we call heaven, streets of gold. All the glories and beauties that cannot be described. You see, when you leave your personal ambitions, you're you're not being someone who is like a masochist hurting himself. in, in, In some weird spiritual way, it's actually a little bit selfish, isn't it? I get heaven. That's kind of great. So in terms of abandoning my pursuit of my own ambitions, but pursuing God's home for me, I'm making the better choice. It's greater. It's better. Because it's eternal. It doesn't run out. This is why Paul says, I have a crown. I I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. But there's a crown that's waiting for me, and it's better. Yes, I, I lived most of my adult life in prison or in threat of prison. I was beaten. I was stoned. I was robbed. I was in shipwreck. I, you know, I am of all men most miserable. But I have heaven. And the place I have is so glorious that the pains of this life are like a second. Uh, the place I have is so wonderful that the weight of this life is like nothing. That's what it means to pursue God's will for your life. It may not be what you thought it would be. God can take away your health. He can take away your money. He can take away your family. He can take away your ambitions, or your goals, your dreams. He can take it all away. And by the way, as you age, he will take a lot of those things away from you. It just will happen. But he can take them away before you think he would normally take them away. But if he takes them away, isn't that what God wants? I don't mean you go out and stand in the middle of the road and get run over and say, well, that's the Lord's will. I'm not talking about that. But I'm saying in the living the normal course of your life, if God in in his plan designs for you something different than you designed for yourself, don't you say, okay, blessed be the name of the Lord? Because I've abandoned my own desires and and my pursuit now is this heavenly home where God is, where God responds to faith with his own embrace not embarrassed to confess those who confess him. I'm your God. It's, this is God saying to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Have you ever thought about that dude? Because he's great. This Job guy's incredible. You should really consider Job. Oh, well, he's only that way because of how you've protected him. And that's where we get the phrase hedge of protection, by the way, from the book of Job. We all pray for that hedge of protection. Just remember... Job had a hedge of protection. So God says, fine, you take it away. He takes his money. He takes his family, leaves him his wife, who's now complaining pants. 
She's a good woman. She's a good woman. She's struggling. And then Satan comes back and God says, I told you, Job's pretty great. No, fine. Let me take away his health. I'll take away his personal peace. It's okay. You go ahead and do that. You can't kill him. Take away anything else you want. And he gives him pain. Intense, unending pain. To the point where now Job's friends are convinced that he's living in some sort of hidden sin that he hasn't shared with them. It must be so egregious that God would do this to him. So he loses his status in the community. He loses the respect of his friends. He's lost everything. And in the middle of all that, Job will not curse God. And even though Job makes some pretty big mistakes, I think he comes out pretty well, don't you? Because after he repents, and he does have some things he has to repent over, then God says to all of his friends, you know, um, unless Job prays for you, you're in real trouble. And of course, Job prays for his friends. That's just the kind of guy he was. And God gives him back twice the number of children he had before. God gives him back twice the wealth he had before. But you see, you read that story, and because we're not Job, and we didn't experience all of this, we read the story, we get to the end and go, oh, isn't it great he got all that extra back? Because we're still thinking about the extra as being the good part. And it's not. It's just evidence that God loves and that God cares. Because what God, Job really got was a name for himself that God then puts in Scripture in other places. You know, he says later, if this land had Job, I would still destroy it. And everybody goes, oh, that's because Job. He's going to say, do you have the patience of Job in the book of James? Job becomes the guy everybody wants to follow. Because for Job, he learned it wasn't about here. Heaven becomes our home. And God really now is our God. And this is not a complete explanation of eschatology. He's not, he's not giving here a full throated explanation of future. He's just saying this, this is what happens. God gives them a place of permanence in response to their life that they gave up of non-permanence. And my friends, I have to ask you, you hear this. If you say, I believe God, have you responded to him? Have you really given up all of your personal ambitions for him? Have you said the only thing that matters is what God wants for me? That's Discipleship 101. Friends, that's why I'm pastor of this church. There are a lot of things I, I think maybe if I had applied myself, I could have done better. But this is what God wants for me. And if, and if that's true, are you focused on your heavenly home? 1628, some 45 years after the birth of Edward Herbert. Remember, he's the father of English deism. He's the guy who says, how can you really know what's true? And everything I've just said, he'd say, you're, you're an idiot. No, that's not it. It's what my mind says is true. 45 years after Herbert was born, John Bunyan was born in Elstow near Bedford, England. Strangely enough, Bunyan's allegiance to the parliament. So I don't know how much English history you know, but right around this time was the English Civil War. 
It wasn't at all like our civil war. English civil war between the monarchy and the parliament. And strangely enough, Bunyan at 16 joined the army. He joined the parliamentary army. And, and at that around that time, Herbert actually, though he was kind of pro-monarch, he opened his home to parliamentary troops, to, to the army, to come stay at his huge estate. So it is in some weird way possible that a, an, a middle age, well, I would say almost old age at that point, he would have been in his early 60s, an early 60s Herbert could have met John Bunyan. That's absolutely possible. It, it's probably unlikely that they met, but it's possible that they met. I, that's just wild. Because Herbert is at the end of the, his life. He dies 14 years later, but Bunyan is a teenager. Now, Bunyan's not a believer, and he returned home from the army, and he became a fix-it man, just like his dad. In fact, his dad had left him just a few tools, almost no money. They were very poor. And when the monarchy was restored to England, about that time, all that political stuff is going on, Bunyan has started going to a church that's called a nonconformist church. They were, they were springing up out of, of nowhere in England. They were just kind of arising up out of the soil, these nonconformist preachers. And many of their preachers did their preaching in fields. They didn't have church buildings. So they go out in the field and they preach and people would come. You remember uh, George Whitfield here in America, an English preacher, preached in fields to huge congregations. And Bunyan, he got saved in this nonconformist church. Later, he believed God wanted him to preach, and he would go out in the fields and he would preach. But the, as the monarchy was restored to England, the monarch thought to himself, the, the, the king of England goes, these guys are going to foment rebellion. I mean, they're, they're preaching in these open fields, and so he made this kind of preaching illegal. And all Bunyan had to do was agree either not to preach anymore, you don't have to preach anymore. Or you have to go through the process of being ordained in the Church of England, which was spiritually dead. And Bunyan said, I won't do it. So they put him in jail. Now, back then, it's not the case today. Wives didn't work outside the home, almost at all. So his family was thrown into deep poverty. He had a little daughter named Mary who was blind, who he just loved. And he's in jail, and all he has to do is say, I won't preach anymore. That's all he has to do. They'll let him out. It's, it's not like a prison term. You just agree not to do this. We let you out. And he says no. Now, there are a bunch of other nonconformist preachers who get let out who either give up preaching or they go over to the Church of England, but Bunyan won't do it. And he spends the better part of 12 years in prison. It was the kind of prison where they didn't have um, running water. They didn't have uh, a septic system, modern conveniences. It was often overcrowded. His food was a half a loaf of bread a day. That's what he ate every day. And if he could get good water... That was a blessing. But during his years in prison, Bunyan wrote a book, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, a book that uh, is probably his best book. But then he also wrote another book that you know to be The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a poem. It, it's, a, it's a story 
written about people who live their lives as a pilgrim. A young man who leaves his home and goes off for a city called the Celestial City. And he meets all these people along the way who try to discourage him from pursuing God. And that's Bunyan's life. That's how he's seeing himself. And then he wrote this little poem you have sitting next to you. And if you have a worldview like the pilgrims in Hebrews 11, well, now this is Bunyan's poem. He who would valiant be against all disaster, let him in constancy follow the master. You want to see the poem, by the way, it's calligraphied on the wall of my office. There's no discouragement shall make him once relent his first avowed intent to be a pilgrim. Whoso beset him round with dismal stories do but themselves confound his strength the more is. No lion. That's how it was originally written. No lion can stay his fright though he with giants fight. He will make good his right to be a pilgrim. And then the third stanza has been edited and I'm so sad because the other part is my favorite part of any hymn written anywhere of any time because the first part of stanza three begins this way, Hobgoblin. And what great song can you sing in church that starts with Hobgoblin? That's awesome. Hobgoblin nor foul fiend can daunt his spirit. He knows he at the end shall life inherit. Then fancies flee away. I'll care not what men say. I'll labor night and day to be a pilgrim. We're going to sing that hymn. Let's stand to our feet. We'll sing the hymn. Then Brother Joe, Pastor Joe, you're going to close us in prayer. He who would valiant be against all disaster. Let's sing about being a pilgrim as we close the service. <laughs>